Um, obviously, you know this is a Cato Institute event, a book forum to be specific. And we have here Letters in Black and White, a new correspondence on race in America. Now, I like the book so much I would afford for it. But uh, don't take my word for it. I want you to listen to what we talk about today and, and come to your own conclusions about how important this book is. So I just came to the conclusion for you. The book is important. Um, but I have here today the authors, Jennifer Richmond and Winkman Twyman. Let's have a, an official introduction. Jennifer Richmond is a for, former professor of Chinese politics and co-founder, executive director of Institute for Liberal Values. We're going to talk about that a little bit today as well. And she is also in full black and white, right? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's good spirit. I like it. Winkfield Twyman is a former law professor uh, focusing on constitutional law, property, and United States Supreme Court decision-making, and son of the New South. I can't wait for you to describe that. <laughs> he is a writer and an advocate for greater understanding across our differences. So today we will just have a conversation, you know, very informal, very relaxed, and um, we will come to uh, understand the impetus for this book and the reason why it is necessary. Before I do that, though, I want to remind everybody, um, especially the people online, um, that we will be taking your questions as well from Twitter, uh, Facebook, and YouTube. Please use the hashtag CatoEvents, all right, uh, so we can make sure we see you and everybody else sees you as well. So let's get started. I will ask a very, very general question. How did this book come about? Shall I? Okay. So I live in Austin, Texas, and Austin is known for being quite progressive. And I came back, let me back up even a little bit farther. I am a China scholar, as, as Eric said, and I spent a lot of time living in China, living overseas, came back to the United States, and I was really disappointed with the fraying of, I think, our, our society and the polarization that we saw. And so I started to write about it. And as I got more into it, I noticed that race was a lot of the wedge issues around our polarization. So being a China scholar, I hadn't studied much about race issues, and I, and I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to, I need to get involved. And so the city of Austin had a diversity training, and I signed up. And I signed up with a very open heart, hoping that I was going to go, listen to views that were not my own, and learn. And I was really disappointed because that was not at all the opportunity that was given to me. Instead, it was one where we broke up. It's probably some of the stories that you've heard about diversity trainings where we broke up into affinity groups. And so I ended up sitting with a bunch of people who looked like me, and I didn't learn much of anything. One of the exercises was to write down white traits. And we were told, not that they were, they were neutral, not good or bad, white traits. What are white traits? I don't know. But we started to write these things down. And to my mind, they weren't neutral. If anything, they might have even been evil. Um, some of the things that we wrote down were violence, rape culture, all these things. That I, and I just was, again, more and more confused. Like this, you know, these are human traits in many ways. So being disappointed and being a writer, I, I, I wrote about it. 
and it was published in a magazine, Aerial magazine that Helen Pluckrose started, just writing about what my experience was. And the next day, I got an email from a stranger. And I will then pass to you. Thank you, Jen. Can you hear me? Um, although I was born in um, Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy in 1961, um, in a segregated colored hospital, uh, as it was called at that time, I actually came of age in the 1970s in a southern suburb, uh, Chesterfield County, Virginia. And what that meant was uh, I was part of the New South. And the New South was, the, in my mind, the first generation of people, of kids, in school who were not segregated by race. Before 1969, the fall of 1969, black and white students had never attended public schools together in my county. Think about that. For centuries, there had been total social isolation between the races. But in the fall of 1969, uh, we advanced a step forward uh, in the New South, in Virginia in Chesterfield County, Virginia. And so unlike my father, who can never call a white Virginian classmate, I was always one of the few black students in my uh, southern suburban uh, high school, and junior high school, and elementary school. And so I learned very quickly to focus on individuals, to focus on what makes people unique. Um, you became a good listener. I learned to really listen to people, not to be right, not to denigrate or to slur, but I learned to listen to individuals to understand people. And that was a tremendous blessing for me in the 1970s. I just wish we had more novels and screenplays and movies about what I call the greatest generation when it comes to race in America. Those who, through their lived experience, helped desegregate a society. But in any event, fast forward, I went on to the University of Virginia, to Harvard Law School, I worked on Capitol Hill for two members of Congress, and found myself in San Diego. Married a lovely wife uh, from an old black American family, and the children came. Fast forward to Jen. One day, uh, maybe a few months before Jen's uh, experience with diversity training, I was having a conversation with a relative, and we were discussing race. The year must have been 2018, 2019, anyway, a world away from the 1970s in rural Virginia. And this relative said to me, blackness is oppression. Nothing else matters. Well, folks, if you've ever seen the movie The Exorcist, my head turned around like that lady in The Exorcist. What is that about? That makes no sense to me. That's like the world turned upside down. If anyone should be defeated about race, it should be me who had to go through and benefit from desegregation in the 1970s in a southern state. So I, I, uh, I was uh, beside myself. I um, didn't understand that. And it so happened that one morning, when I was um, preparing for work, I turned on my computer and I went to read this essay, which had been authored by Jennifer Richmond. And when I read it, I felt less alone. And that's what great writers do. 
great writers can make you feel less alone by the insights they convey. Uh, because sadly, I love my family, but they are definitely, uh, shall we say, subscribers to racial dogma. And that's all good, but if it's four against one, you can kind of feel alone sometimes in your own household. So I saw when I read Jennifer's essay, here's a kindred spirit. Here's someone who also sees the pitfalls of caricatures and stereotypes. These are lessons I learned as a little kid in the 1970s. So we started to correspond, we started to talk, one thing led to another, and together we tried to help understand what was going on in this country regarding race. Why were we regressing from the 1970s? And uh, in the end was produced our book, Letters in Black and White, A New Correspondence on Race in America. And it has been fun because, in, like I said before, I always try to listen to understand not to be right, and I think that comes across in that book. Okay. Speaking of the book, what would you, how would you describe it as quickly as possible to somebody curious about reading it? How would I describe the book? Um, the, the book is the coming together of uh, two kindred spirits who are opposed to dogma, to racial dogma. Uh, two spirits who are opposed to caricatures based upon race, stereotypes based upon race. Uh, two individuals who are open-minded, who are probably non-conformist in the modern age, and who want to increase uh, understanding in our country. That's kind of what I would think of the book. Yeah, I think for me, it, once we start, we were writing each other, again, just out of the love of, of writing, and, and after about three or four months of writing, we had so much material, and I'd grown so much. I think Wink thought that he, you know, he would grew so much. Where I said, you know, this is a conversation we're not having. We talk a lot about, you know, in diversity training, they call it courageous conversations, which really just means sit down and shut up. And I said, I think we're actually. This is the conversation I wanted to have to begin with, and I said, we're not having it, and I could not find this conversation anywhere that I looked. You know, it, whether it be in diversity training, in the university settings, or even in the workplace among friends. And so, for me, I hope that it comes across as an invitation to other people to open dialogue about these issues that seem to be polarizing in America. And if I may tag upon that, blackness, ladies and gentlemen, is not oppression. And that's one of the uh, hashtags, quote unquote, that should come across as you read the book. Okay, this book is special for many reasons, but one of them is its composition. It is literally a letter correspondence. They're writing letters to each other uh, for several months. Why do it that way instead of uh, co-write more traditionally? Hmm. That's a good question. I, honestly, I think I'd go back to what I, I just said. I mean, it really models an honest dialogue versus something co-written. So, and you'll see in the letters, I mean, we don't agree often. And so, again, not just about, this is a, racial issues aside, I think that it shows that we can be, as Wink likes to say, we can disagree without being disagreeable. That's one of Wink's favorite catchphrases. And so I think that's the reason we kept it in its form as letters. Letters offer a unique opportunity to gaze into the human soul, uh, the human spirit. Uh, unlike the traditional format of a nonfiction book, when you have a series of letters, you really are peering into uh, the inner um, 
questions, the inner curiosities, the inner torments of the person. You know, I'm reminded of a book that I'm, I'm sure no one has read except for Jen here in the room. There was a book written in the 1820s, I think, by a Reverend John Rankin, and it was called Letters on American Slavery. And in many ways, we are the descendant of that book. And that book in the 1820s was about this guy who was so horrified that his brother had purchased slaves in Virginia, and he just felt that was wrong. And so through a series of letters, a series of letters over months, he made case after case and argument after argument to his brother as to why slavery was wrong, why owning slaves was wrong. And that book became the inspiration for the, um, what's his name, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, who eventually would create the Liberator and become one of the leaders of the Anti-Slavery Society. So perhaps in this modern age of racial division and polarization, we are the modern day descendants of Reverend Rankin. We feel compelled to write letters in the hope that someone out there will read them and then see a better way of thinking about race for the, uh, the coming generation. That's my idea, at least. Well, it does work. I remember reading it and thinking, I feel like I'm eavesdropping in on a conversation that is most Americans' biggest nightmare, right? Talking about race genuinely, interculturally, right? Uh, nobody really wants to do that, but here I am reading this and it's working. And it, it, it's providing insights that probably wouldn't be provided otherwise. A genuine conversation between two people about race. But I have to ask, although it does work, what were the challenges and how do you get over them? Oh, challenges. Okay, I'll name one off the bat. No, I'll name two off the bat. So one challenge would be we have different visions for race. So my vision is that beyond the year 2050, we're gonna solve a lot of these problems anyway because of the changing cycles and generations. My idea is that Kids will rebel against their parents, their, their, their woke parents. In the 2030s and 2040s, you're gonna have a new generation of kids who grow up and they're gonna be rebels like the beatniks and the hippies. It's gonna be cool to not be woke. It's gonna be cool to be non-conforming. And then when they become adults in the 2050s and 2060s, they will usher in the blessed society where racial divisions melt away. That's my vision and I live for that. I may be 61 years old, I'm not gonna be around in the year 2050 or beyond, but like Moses, if you have a vision and you can help lead people in the right direction, that's satisfaction enough, at least for me. Whereas Jen believes there is too much victimization and racial resentment among black Americans for black Americans to ever think of themselves as old Americans a unitary classification. And so my vision may be unrealistic and not achievable in the here and now. That was our one great dispute. The second, um, I wrote Jen because I could open up to Jen, which is the greatest of ironies because I live in a black family, right? But because my black American family subscribes to racial dogma, it's never really possible to have these deep conversations. Think about that. Isn't that ironic? Um, but I think it's because different families have different approaches to race. 
different black American families have different approaches to race. And I think that's something Jen didn't really appreciate until I smacked her over the head with the reality of Jack and Jill. <laughs> right. Jack and Jill, if you don't, we can tell you more about it, but is an, an elite uh, black organization. Youth, is it, would you say? Uh, it's moms. Moms. So okay. moms. So when he first told me about this, I really thought it was a nursery rhyme. I had not, this is how much I did not know. And keep in mind, when we started this correspondence, I had just finished this diversity training, and again, race is such a fraught topic in the, in the United States. And so I wanted, I felt like I had to tread lightly, lest I say something to offend. And so I probably, well, I not, didn't probably, I know I came into the conversation and I, Wink immediately stopped me because I was using a lot of slogan words. She tried to say she was quite privileged and I wasn't having it. You can't have a conversation, people, if you're using slogan words and filter words. He gets. We didn't even know of such a thing in the 1970s in good old Chester, Virginia. So if you really want to talk with people, put aside throw away the slogan words and have an honest conversation. But I digress, continue, Jen. Uh, one of the funny things was, you know, at one of the, our first letters, I said something like, you know, look, I, I didn't, re I, my family you, um, didn't have any issues. They, you know, you know generational wealth was common. Uh, I didn't grow up in the, you know, mind you, I just finished reading Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. So, you know, I didn't grow up in the ghetto, and so I'm trying again to be sensitive to a life that's not mine. <laughs> and Wink wrote back, he goes, I didn't grow up in the ghetto either, you know? And so he felt like I didn't see him. Hmm. And that was really where the conversation started to get going. That's true. That's and true. he basically said, if you keep using these slogan words, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Yeah, because what's the point, right? What's the point? If you want to have a real conversation, you look into the person across the table, you look into their eyes, and you ask questions not to be right, but to understand. That's the way you do it, people. That's what we did in our book. Yeah, and as I said earlier, it does work. I, I uh, implore you to read this book. Um, I have to ask, um, as I was reading the book, and as I you know, met you and, and talked to you as, as much as I can, um, I realized that you guys are good communicators. Well, thank you. Yes, you're, you're very good at this. What, what do you think makes you a good communicator? Now, you, you guys both have uh, talked about your past, your origin stories, if you will. The book starts with that. Um, I'm wondering how those origin stories affected your ability to communicate so well. For me, it was this growing up overseas, and so having to navigate various cultures. We grew up when I was younger, I lived in uh, what is now called Myanmar, it was Burma at the time, Indonesia, China. And so having that respect and that empathy, and honestly though, living overseas, I realized that it, at some point we are more similar than we are different. I mean, we have similar desires, similar wants, similar, similar goals, you know, love of family, et cetera. And so I think that that, that background gave me a certain empathy and curiosity that perhaps influenced the way I communicate. Two answers to that question, uh, communication skills. So answer one, 
I happened to be the nephew of several uncles. And so as I came of age, I remember attending church service at the Ebenezer AME Church on Terminal Avenue in Richmond, Virginia. And when you're a little nephew and you see your uncles preparing sermons, delivering sermons, reading the room of the congregants, you kind of develop an innate sense for how to reach people, how to touch people, what works, what doesn't work. Number two, when you are the only black kid in your southern suburban public high school in 1972 or 74 or 76 or 78, you focus, what the focus on race drifts away, it recedes because everyone's an individual. So you have to force yourself to decide, well, what works best for Murray Berkey, my classmate? What does she resonate with in terms of conversations and issues? Or what works best with Scott Lee? Or what really gets my best friend Terry Nicholson going? And so my sense is that, oddly enough, in that environment, <clears throat> you're almost trained to be hyper-tuned in to communication skills based upon the person you're talking to. I sometimes wonder, if you attend a school that's all black, do you equally achieve those same skills or not? Or a school that's, say, half black and half white? Could it be the case that there might be more racial peer pressure in a half black, half white school to be tribal, to stick to your own group, as opposed to the two extremes where race recedes away because it's not a factor. For example, I've been told by total strangers that I seem Jamaican, or are you from Jamaica? And I think that's just because sometimes people who come from Jamaica to the States don't have a sense of racial weight on their shoulders. They really do kind of view America with eyes fresh. And I think by the same token, perhaps my grade school experience in learning to focus on the individual person allowed me to have a certain optimism in my communication. In other words, I assume people are good until proven otherwise. There are bad people in the world, but I don't necessarily assume that because you're of a certain race, you must be bad. I think sometimes people do that. I think that's unfortunate, but I think I learned not to do that because of my unique um, upbringing in the 1970s in a newly desegregated school. So I think those two reasons contribute to my communication skills, which you nicely admired. And accurately, as you can see yeah. already. Eric, the money's in the checks in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you bring up the word individualism. Um, which I think is important uh, because of its absence in a lot of uh, uh, the dogma that you speak of, the dogma that can be um, summed up in the phrase, um, black is oppression, that's all that matters. Where do you think that comes from? Why is it so prevalent in race relations today? And besides this book, what can we do about it? Well, I'm gonna point some fingers, why not? Where does it come from? I think it comes from Derrick Bell, who wrote Faces at the Bottom of the Well, The Permanence of Racism, where he argued that you know we were hopeless on race as Americans. It just would never go away. I think it comes from a former classmate, Kimberly Crenshaw, who had the wonderful idea to create intersectionality and hyper-focus on the intersection of race and gender. I think it comes from a general sense of alienation and disaffection from the American mainstream. 
I think it comes from black nationalism in the late 1960s. Um, I think it comes from a human urge for conformity, that if you are black and you're steered into groups like Jack and Jill, Alpha Kappa Alpha, Apple Phi Alpha, the Boule, and all the rest, I think that there develops this sense that this is the way to be a black person in America, and the powers of conformity take over. So that's, that's kind of my thought, where the idea came from, blackness is oppression, nothing else matters. And it's so ironic, so ironic, because I actually attended an all-black segregated elementary school in the first and second grade in 1967 to 69 in Chesterfield County, Virginia. And I never remember that word, oppression. My entire universe is black. All of my school teachers, my principal, the faculty, the staff, and yet we never used that word, oppression. We would have used words like traditional, enterprise, industry, ambition, self-reliance. Those are the words I would have heard in my all-black world in the late 1960s. What happened? Isn't it so ironic that in a day and age when black kids are more blessed, they, they spout the need to feel oppressed with more and more urgency. It's a total, total, total reversal of reality. And, you know, it is what it is, but I certainly decided to, uh, to write a book and to speak my mind because you gotta live in truth, people. You can't create doctrine. Here's the thing. Words do not create reality, try as you might. However, reality should inform your words that you use. And I think if we look at life that way, we'll be healthier as a country and as a people. Okay? Once again, just my thought, I always say, I'm one out of over 40 million black Americans. Problem is, we too often assume there's only one way to be a black American, and that one way is to believe blackness is oppression, nothing else matters. Hashtag blackness is not oppression. <laughs> okay. Your thoughts? Honestly, I'm not, I, I, I really don't know the origin of this. I mean, Eric, I've actually learned a lot from you who started Free Black Thought. I mean, one of your things was racial essentialism that has become trendy. Uh, how did it start? I mean, I would say there's some tribalism has developed as a result of things like social media. But to put people in a box and to limit who they are based on immutable characteristics is absolutely missing the mark and miss the richness in a conversation. And so where, the origin of it, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I would almost even, even ask what your thought of is, it is, but it is something that I noticed as a, a trend that really, I believe, started more in the past decade or so. So whether that's the confluence of social media, whether it's, uh, you know, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure where it came from, but it is, it is that racial essentialism. And I saw that in the diversity training too. Again, trying to box in black traits and white traits, and it was so limiting and was absolutely, the antithesis of what we need if we're going to create a true, truly diverse uh, nation and, and a diverse viewpoint diversity in our conversations.
I think a large, probably the largest, difference between the uh, classical 60s civil rights movement and what's going on today is each movement's relationship to classical liberalism, right? Which includes individualism and, and many of the things you, you both have already been talking about. You would have been aligned with what was going on in the 60s, but not so much today. How do you think classical liberalism informs this book? Um, where can it be seen in the book? Um, yeah, I'll stop there. I think it, where classical liberalism and where the book touches on it is going back to this idea of individuality and seeing each other as an individual and not as a certain race or by skin color as well. I think the other thing is this idea of freedom of expression and this pushback against the censorship that we often see in these conversations around race, particularly when you feel that you could be canceled or you know lose a job or you'd be threatened by the conversation around race. So I think that liberty, that individualism, that freedom of expression is kind of the centerpiece of what informs us and how we write. Yeah. I think um, classical liberalism is from start to finish in the book. You can find it, for example, in one of the very first premises of the book, which is if there are over 40 million black Americans, there are over 40 million different life stories, experiences, and perspectives. That's individualism, because we're all individuals. It comes across in the freedom to talk, and to talk and write for understanding, not to write in furtherance of a narrative because that just constrains thought. It comes across really, really in the um, anti-dogma sentiment in the book. I, for one, I, for one, uh, am a descendant of French Huguenots uh, in Chesterfield County. And as some of you may know, the French Huguenots suffered from the imposition of dogma by the Catholic Church in France. And so they fled for greater freedom from dogma to England, and then from England to Virginia, where they literally settled maybe 10 or 15 miles from my childhood town. So perhaps that strain of the French Huguenot runs deeply in my veins. And so when I confront dogma uh, and its manifestations, I recoil, I rebel, I resist, I uh, uh, speak out, I write against. I do what I can uh, to um, not become a slave to dogma. So there you go. All right. Dogma. Dogma. My favorite word. <laughs> yes. Uh, you guys are obviously not addicted to dogma and to the point where you can have such a real conversation. Unfortunately, there are people out there who will cite the concept of positionality. Um, uh, which is the idea that you can't understand who I am unless you are me or had the same exact experiences as I have. Otherwise, this is a meaningless conversation, right? You guys obviously don't do that. The book wouldn't exist otherwise. So what do you think about people who embrace this idea of positionality? 
um, that shuts down the conversation, um, that abides by the narrative that you just finished talking about. Mm -hmm. Why do you think they do this? What are they afraid of? Well, I think positionality is meaningless <laughs> as a concept, uh, number one. Number two, that's the whole point of getting to know someone is uh, by asking them questions, by increasing your insight of them. I mean, we're humans. We're not avatars for a racial group. So to me, positionality is one of those um, slogan words that I don't really use because I feel it just simply manipulates people. Let's, let's grow up people. Let's transform ourselves. We can do better. We can uh, talk in real terms and use plain language. Let's put positionality and systemic this and structural that and marginalized this and intersectionality that and all the rest of the wonderful cousins of dogma into the dustbin of history and let us help usher in a better age where we can just talk Talk as people, as individuals, woman to man, man to woman, uh, black to white, or even better, human to human. Well, I think you already, positionality, there's no reason for conversation if you're coming from a place of positionality. Why even talk at all? I mean, the whole point of getting to know someone, and you, you, you might not live their exact same experience, but you can still empathize and so you know you hear so much in these diversity trainings where you know you don't have particularly you know towards white people you, you don't have room to speak uh, do your homework do the work well again if I don't have the ability to empathize and to understand and to hear and to ask questions then I don't ever get that opportunity to grow and to learn and to make the change and to be the change that I want to be. So the idea of positionality is one that is absolutely one of the reasons that we don't have these conversations and th that's creating the, the discord. Jen, if I might yeah. follow up on that. So in terms of positionality uh, and, and our rebuttal to that, in what concrete ways do you better understand me as a person after four years of writing a book together? What, do, how do I understand you better? Better. Mm -hmm. What you gave me was the ability to learn and to see through your eyes. There was not, I ne didn't feel fear. I didn't feel judgment. And so I could ask questions to actually really truly then get to know your position and to have that empathy, whereas if I didn't have that opportunity to do so, really that, doesn't, that, that is the antithesis of connection. And I think a lot of people are segregating because they just don't have anything to say anymore because of issues of positionality. With you, I had an opportunity to really dive into an issue to get to know you as a person. I think we say this in the book, you know, Hundreds of thousands of people can't talk to hundreds and thousands of people, but what we can do is we can talk to one another, and that's what we do in the book. I think that you gave me the opportunity to, one of the, the biggest lessons that I learned from you, Wink, is it's, just, it's so simple, but don't engage bullies. You know, so you're just in writing you, I'd always go to Wink whenever I would have a conversation where I felt that I was silenced, if you will. You know, I, I would go to, to Wink and ask his, has, ask his opinion. And so there was, that, we, there was a trust there and an honesty that I didn't get out of most 
relationships and conversations. Mm. And it came from we, you know, four years of bearing, I think, our true selves. And that's what I think that's the nice thing, going back to something, Eric, you said earlier. I mean, that's the nice thing about letters, too, is, I mean, it's life plainly. It's yes, just, life yeah. lived plainly. Life lived plainly. What I learned from Jen as a person, gender cut positionality, I mean, I always have known that people are individuals, right? So I didn't approach Jen as an avatar for the white race, because that's just ridiculous. And I learned that in the third grade, okay? This is, this is like life skills 101. But some of the concrete things I learned about Jen was one, the sad, sad effect of the caricatures in the media. I mean, as Jen mentioned earlier, she was, she was careful to talk about the black ghetto, uh, Tony Hose's Coates's fame, because she didn't want to offend, not realizing, no, I grew up in a southern suburb. That was not my experience. But because of the way the media covers the black American experience, we all too quickly assume, well, you must have some urban experience in your background. That must be where you're coming from. Number two, that, that um, she was ready to talk to me using slogan words. And I disabused her of that, and I felt like once she was disabused of that, she could really open up and there was clear sailing ahead, ahead for our writing. Um, Jen didn't mention this, but I might just briefly mention it. There was uh, an earlier exchange between Jen and someone else, and as I recall, I just read like a passage or two, but I recall that it seemed chock full of the things we call slogan words. And I just felt that was very sad because that person wasn't able to talk with a real human being without using set phrases. And that's sad. I mean, that's a sad reflection on where we are today. But anyway, you, 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 if, you, if you crack open these words, see that they are manipulative in effect, and just talk to someone like they are an individual, first and foremost, uh, I think you'll find that genuine conversation lies on the other side of that, of that hill. Just my thoughts. Well, I think in that, in that conversation with the other person, there's just this hypersensitivity around race, so everything is filtered through this racial lens, and so it really uh, makes conversation difficult, because even if you say something that is, in your mind, not racial at all, and it's interpreted that way, where do you go from there in the conversation? And that goes back to this you know, idea of racial essentialism. It just, there's, it, 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 it's a, it, it stops all, all purposeful and meaningful conversation. That makes me want to ask if there was any instance where one person inadvertently offended another person during this letter correspondence, and how did you deal with it? Offense. That's a big word, Eric. Offense. Because I've been through a lot in life. It's, it doesn't take too much. It takes quite a bit to truly offend me, quote unquote. Um, let me think. Um, offense. Um, well, you, you go, Jen, because okay. I'm having a hard time. Okay. I wouldn't say the word offend. I don't feel like I've ever felt offended. But our biggest issue that we had in the book that we disagreed on, and uh, it, we, had to, we had to work through it, is this idea of old Americans. So Wink asks, why can't we just all see each other as old Americans? To which I said, I don't think we're ready for that. 
Not that I didn't, I liked the idea, I thought it was a you know, very good idea, but we weren't ready for that. And particularly, I felt that if I were to say, oh, we're just all old Americans, it would be perceived as a, pa a pass. You know, that I, we could just, oh, forget history, I'm an old American, you're an old American, kumbaya. And so when I wrote back expressing as much to Wink, I wouldn't say you were offended, Wink, but you uh, were, what I said to you was very distressing. And it, it was, there was a couple of email, or not, yeah, letters back and forth mm -hmm. trying to kind of persuade each other of our, our positions, our ideas on that. And that's a, that's a pretty strong word, distressing, but maybe it's a fair word. Give you some backstory. I love genealogy. I love personal genealogy. I've done Ancestry, I've done 23andMe, I've done Family Tree, I've done JetMatch, I love that stuff. And I'm a Twyman, that's my last name, Twyman. And before my, before I turned, let me get straight, well, before my birthday in the year 2017, I think, I can only go back in my family line to uh, a, a formerly enslaved person named uh, what was his name? I think it was Scott. Yeah, Scott Twyman, born in 1848, died in 1939. And that was it. I couldn't go back any further. And I was really frustrated about that because my family name means a lot to me. Uh, I was raised on Twyman Road in Chesterfield County. Everyone who lived on Twyman Road was a, was a Twyman. There was Uncle Robert Daniel at the end of the street with his white Aunt Juanita and his children, Tony, Bob, and uh, Bruce, and Todd. And across the street was Uncle Willie Ernest Twyman Sr. with his two kids. And we were all Twymans. And until I was eight, no, until I was about six years old, to me, the entire world was just Twymans. No one else existed. We're just Twymans, right? And so it saddened me that I could not go further back in time than Scott Twyman, who was a slave in 18, uh, for, born in 1848. But that's common with many black Americans who are descendants of slavery. Slave masters didn't keep very detailed birth records. But one day on my birthday, um, another cousin helped me to locate a distant white cousin through the Twyman line, and that opened up my universe, because now I could trace the Twyman line back to 1661 in Birchington, Kent, England. And I had a whole universe of white Twyman cousins I had never known about before. And as a result, I became really enamored with this idea that if more people could trace and discover distant cousins from other races, it would help furthify a greater sense of family among Americans, particularly old Americans whose roots date back to the 1600s. I mean, my, um, one of my ancestors is Peter Montague, who was the first school teacher in Colonial Virginia in 1621. Think about that. You're talking like Mayflower people, right? Like Pilgrim era. And I just think that for a black American to have that knowledge and sense of self, <coughs> expands your sense of connection to the American story. There are saints and there are sinners, but your story is more complete. No black American descendant of American slavery is 100% black. You're something else. You're either part French Huguenot, 
you're part English or Irish or Scandinavian, or in my case, Filipino. I have an ancestor from the Philippines who was born between 1630 and 1790, I think. How did he get here, he or she? Probably through the slave trade. Born in the Philippines, traveled to Indonesia, traveled to Madagascar, a British slave ship captured someone, brought them all the way to colonial Virginia, and that ancestor's genes still live within me today on five of my chromosomes. I just think it's a wonderful way for all Americans, particularly black Americans, to expand your sense of self and to recognize that we are indeed old Americans, but for Peter Montague, but for the white Twymans, literally, I would not be here because I would not be a genetic whole person. That's my thoughts. Okay. Well, that gives me an idea um, based on what you just said. I'm going to throw out some terms, and I want to know what you two think about them, how you interpret them, how they're valued or not valued, what have you. Uh, based on what you just said, let's start with melting pot. Oh, how do I evaluate that? Um, no, I just think that's reality over time, right? I mean, look at uh, Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico. They kind of see themselves as a people, even though they're three distinct strands, the Spanish, uh, Indians, and African. Look at Cubans. Cubans think of themselves as one people, even though they're three different strands, the Spanish, the Indian, and the African. I just think there's wisdom in, to use your term, melting pot, because if you look at Cubans and Puerto Ricans, they have the ability to transcend those racial strands and to think of themselves as one people. So I ask you, I put it to you plainly, if Puerto Ricans and Cubans can think of themselves as one people, why can't white Americans and black Americans who have the same ancestors from the 1600s and the 1700s think of themselves as one people as well? The shame, a microaggression, <laughs> I think we're supposed to say a salad and not oh, a melting pot. I don't do slogan words, Jen. I don't do slogan words, people. Oh, hello, hello. No idea. I live in a different universe, people. <laughs> I'm a time traveler was, from the 1970s. That's, you know, when someone told me that one time when I said melting pot, and I said it with love, I mean, I just, like, that's what I think is so cool about this country is the diversity. I really actually love the diversity. And when I was, I was, I was chastised for saying melting pot. I was corrected that it's supposed to be a salad these days because it means that we all kind of mix together and we lose our identity, which I think someone's overthinking it a little bit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is where we've become so hypersensitive that it just goes back to what we've been saying. How do you even have a conversation when every single word can be viewed through this racialized lens and become something that uh, you know, so you become silent. Well, you don't have to play along. You don't have no, to play along. Where I learned from you, don't engage bullies. Yeah, so I mean, the way is you know one option. But the thing is, at some point, we have to find a way to have these conversations if we are going to truly see ourselves as old Americans. And this is where I say I'm not sure because we're so hypersensitive right mm -hmm. now. Where it, words like melting pot, you know, are considered a microaggression. That we are at a place where we can accept this idea of seeing ourselves in each other um, across the racial line. Yeah, and you know the, the the unforeseen consequence of the 
microaggression melting pot is, as you say, you just keep people further and further apart. You, you create a false consciousness of division, mm. right? Because the reality is, as I mentioned before, I'm not just a black American, you know, I'm all these other things as well, Filipino, French Huguenot, um, English, Irish, Scandinavian, on and on. I took family tree, right? And it, I did a paternal line, because your paternal line can be traced back directly for generations. And I was expecting to find African men, right, on my, through my father's line. What did I find? I didn't find any matches among black Americans or Africans. What did I find? Hear me, listen to me. I found among my paternal line at Family Tree matches from a Puerto Rican family, Zapata. <coughs> I found a match to an Italian guy who lives in Boston. And the oldest match was a guy from Serbia. So my, my you know, think about that. So my paternal line somehow went through Puerto Rico, Italy, Serbia. But yet, some would say to me, well, you must only think of yourself only as 100% black American in a story. So wrong, so false, so misleading, so constricting, so hardening of racial divisions. Imagine, imagine a country tomorrow where every American, regardless of race, fully embraced, cherished, and loved all of their genetic antecedents. You love the West African in you as well as the Serbian in you. You love the Cameroonian in you as well as the French Huguenot. I just think it changes your sense of place in the universe. I think you become a more complete person, particularly if you're a white American descended of American slavery and you have black cousins, reach out to them. I urge everyone here who has ancestors dating back to the 1600s and the 1700s to do ancestry. Find your black cousins, you know they're there. You're gonna have black fourth cousins and black fifth cousins. Reach out to them, send them an email, talk to them. We did that in our book and I was guilty. I was guilty of racial profiling. It's a long story, save it for the book, right? <laughs> That's one of the things when we started writing, he said, do your, do your DNA, reach out to, and, and sure enough, I had several cousins that I reached out to across the color line. And I really feel like if you are to do diversity, if, if that's even something you need to do, is that was like, that was so eye-opening for mm -hmm. me. And to start those conversations with people that were actually family and didn't look like me. So mm -hmm. I, that, that is, if you're gonna do diversity, that's the way to do diversity. You're here, yeah. you're here. Two thumbs up, Eric. Two thumbs up. All right. Do you have more words for us? Are you yes, give I us do. And it's, and it's based on the conversation. They keep popping up. They emerge organically. How about colorblindness? <laughs> Another slogan word, eh? Uh, yeah, I don't do colorblindness. I do human visibility. You know, it's funny. Um, well, I won't say that. Another story for another time. But no, I, I just don't. And because I don't, um, next question. Oh. Jen? Well, I think though, and we get to this in our book, is, in, uh, you know, I, I, Angel Eduardo says just being color blah instead of color blind. I really like being color blah. But 
we end up at a point, and we debate this in, in the book, this is one of the things that we kind of go back and forth on, is just the idea of retiring from race altogether and whether or not that's even possible. There's a friend of all of ours here, Sheena Mason, mm. who uh, her thing is the theory of racelessness. And so I think by the end of the book, Wink and I have decided that that's really the way to go is to retire from race altogether. And whether or not, whether or not society will let us do that. Well, we have good companies, don't good companions in that endeavor, don't we, Jen? We have Thomas Chatterton Williams, who wrote Unlearning Race. Mm -hmm. We have the wonderful Adrian Piper, who resigned from race in 2012 and lives in Berlin. And we have, of course, Sheena Mason. Um, it's life is interesting. Um, I have in the book we talk about some of my wife's ancestors who made similar decisions a long, long time ago. But in terms of like colorblind, because that's you know that's a, a buzzword, colorblindness. And again, it's obviously I see that you have more melanin. I mean, we we're, we're really um, mincing your know, words here, but it doesn't matter. And so this is where Angel Eduardo says color blah. Like, I see it, you know, I mean, I'm not blind, but it doesn't matter. So, I mean, color blindness doesn't, uh, the, the word itself doesn't offend me. I know that it offends people now. It's also another new, you know, microaggression, but I just, I, I'm gonna go with color blah. Okay. okay. All right. That leads me to one more concept, okay. and then we can possibly move on. Microaggression. <laughs> I mean, is it a legitimate term? Is it, yeah. Well, you, you know, if you're going to be human and live in society, you're going to have friction sometimes. You're going to be annoyed sometimes. But the thing is, sometimes you're going to perceive a slight or an insult, and it's not there. I return once again to our, my cousin that we'll talk about in the book. Who I, raci I racially profile someone. If someone could complain about a microaggression, it's my distant white cousin, uh, Nancy. Nancy Williamson, which, by the way, we did a podcast with her. If right. you wanted to hear that conversation more about right. how he racially profiled, profiled her. Yes, I did. I'm going to confess my sins here. You're all my friends. I'm going to confess. So what happened was, as you know, I love genetic genealogy, right? Ancestry.com, becoming the full me, knowing all of my strains of, of my past. So I came across a... Um, I think she was a fifth cousin, that sounds right. And she lived in Virginia. And I was intrigued because, you know, we shared a certain number of chromosomes. So I wanted to know, well, who's our most recent common ancestor? Because that's what you do if you're a geek and a nerd or an ancestor in 23andMe. You want to know who's the most recent common ancestor. So I reached out to her. I introduced myself. I'm not a criminal. I'm a nice guy. I want to know how we're related. <clears throat> I didn't hear anything back. You know, a month, two months. Three months passed, and then I got this furtive um, email from her, and I might get the timing wrong, but it was a passage of time, and then it was like this impulsive paragraph uh, about how our most recent common ancestor had owned a slave and has sexed up his slaves and may he burn in hell. Okay, I get it. I understand but I wanted to know you, distant cousin, as a person more, not so much the evil, most recent common ancestor. So I wrote her back, because I wanted to know more. Tell me more about that guy and about you. Nothing. A month passed, two months passed, three months, six months, nine months. We started writing a book by that point, mm -hmm. and I just assumed she was some, you know, prejudiced white distant cousin 
who couldn't stand the idea that her ancestor had been a bad guy. So I just wrote her off. And we wrote about that in the book, how you know people can't get over the fact that they have evil ancestors. I totally racially profiled the woman because of her race and her ancestry and our connection. Well, lo and behold, after we had written that part of the book, who did I hear from but my cousin? Oh, hi, Wink, how you doing? I don't check 23andMe very often. I totally had this misperception of her, right, as some kind of traumatized white cousin, and it was all wrong. It was false as the $2 bill. I apologized to her, my heart went out to her, we did a podcast with her, and it taught me, it taught me, you don't have to be white to racially profile someone, and it taught me that about the dangers of microaggressions, it can cut both ways, many ways. So hopefully I've made amends to my dear, sweet, lovely cousin Nancy. She's acknowledged in the book, and she taught me an important lesson. Don't jump to conclusions about people because of their race. Important lesson learned. Well, and I think with microaggressions too, I mean, there's, we've, we've lost this ability to forgive and to show grace. So, I mean, now a microaggression is asking where you're from. I do that. I know time. you do. I, I know it. you're you're a very microaggressiony kind of guy. I had a great um, conversation during that. <laughs> there was but we love that. <laughs> I mean, you did. You had a great conversation around this. I learned she was black from Alaska, and I was intrigued, and I kept talking with her. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, but so we, I think that do microaggressions exist? Yes, but do they exist to the level that we have taken it, where you can't even ask where you're from without being offended? Okay. Yeah, that's silly. Come on. Although I have to admit, you know, I can I can be pristine here like a saint, but I've encountered this in my own family. I won't mention names, but I was having a conversation with someone's girlfriend, uh, and we were in I think Hollywood, and there was another guy there who was a roommate of the person, the relative, and I asked the 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 the, the friend of the relative, so where are you from? And my relative looked like I had released a foul odor in the room. I felt like, good Lord, I just asked where the guy is from. So apparently I was not up with the times, I guess. But he has a fascinating background. The roommate is from Sierra Leone and had wonderful things to share about his background that I would not have learned if I hadn't asked the question. But yeah, 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 there are microaggressions even in true my family at times that concern for them, which is kind of silly. All right. I just had an idea. I'm going to make a T-shirt that says, hey, where are you from? There you Let's go. See what happens. I like that. I'll buy it. Yeah, <laughs> of course you would. Hashtag, where are you from? <laughs> um, before we get into uh, the Q&A section of uh, today's event, I want to ask um, our two guests if they have any projects going on right now uh, that speak to the concepts in this book. Um, it, it's one thing to write the book, but uh, are you just done with this topic or are you moving on and doing other things? Two things. I mean, we we're planning another we continue to write at each other, so expect more from us. <laughs> um, and then what I've done with regards to these ideas of liberal values is with, with my friend Eric, uh, we started the Institute for Liberal Values and these, you know, kind of a continuation of the themes that are in this book of valuing individuality, valuing freedom of speech, and actually providing the tools so that people can 
adopt, make liberal values a, a kind of a, a second nature, if you will. So that's what I'm doing professionally. While Wink and I are still writing, I th we're writing for, as Wink I think I already mentioned, for the next generation. Right, right. I think the idea is to write a book as a sequel that talks about beyond the year 2050. And what does that look like when you do have a change in um, the embrace of inv individualism uh, in the future with the coming generation? Um, I also write essays on my own here and now. I, I have two ideas in my own currently. One, um, I'm thinking about an essay in which I write about the lack of self-awareness among some black Americans. Because obviously the values and attitudes of victimization and slogan words is not producing a better society. We seem sometimes to have more dysfunction than we did in the 1970s and 80s. So I'm working on an essay about why is there a lack of self-awareness among some who cling to these things that are not working? Why would you do that? Uh, and then the second idea I have and this actually went to my heart, and Jen knows the story. So I'm the family historian, no surprise. And uh, one of the things I love about my wife's family is it's a very historic family. I love history. Her family is an old black American family. They date back to, I don't know, the 1700s. Congressman. Well, before him, he, right. Congressman Rainey was the first black congressman. He served from 1870 to 1879. But before he, Congressman Rainey, um, James Mitchell was the first black American in their family of note. In the late 1790s, he immigrated, a free black guy, from England to Charleston, South Carolina, and he formed in 1790 the very first black self-help organization in North America. It was called the Brown Fellowship Society. And they had a number of generations of successful, prominent black ancestors in Charleston throughout the 1800s. Um, but anyway, so a relative is planning to go to Charleston. And she asked me, well, what should I see? What sites should I look at? And I had like a, like a three-page email of things to do, people to see. That's me. And then she emailed me back and said, wink. I can't find the family graveyard. Uh, this would be for the Brown Fellowship Society. And I said, well, no, it, it must be there somewhere because I, I saw it a few years ago. Well, apparently, the family graveyard, which contained graves of some of the most distinguished black Americans in Charleston, South Carolina, had been paved over. That's horrible. So today, students walk over these grave sites at the College of Charleston, I think it's called. So I want to write about that. I want to write about, there really are examples of disrespect in history, and one would be the um, demise of one of America's most old black families to the point where their historic tombstones have been paved over, and what kind of restitution or remedy should be gathered for that, uh, for that, uh, that incident. Um, I mean, it's not uplifting, but it's truth. It needs to be told because this is a cousin who wants to pay homage to her great, 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 great grandfather, nine greats, eight greats, seven greats, and six greats, and she can't do that because the darn graveyard has been paved over by uh, the College of Charleston. That's a real story of injustice that people can unite behind, I think. Okay, thank you both very much. Now we'll start the Q&A session. 
Um, I want to remind people online uh, to use hashtag Cato events. Uh, when asking questions, uh, we will take questions from Facebook, Twitter, um, and YouTube. Uh, but first, we have people here. So if anyone has a question, yes. Microphone. My name is Joe Freeman. I spent four years in the 60s civil rights movement, including a year and a half working for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in four deep south states, and I finished a book about it. One of the most striking things when I was working in the South was that blacks and whites didn't talk to each other. Mm. Trying to get the, a, a small town just to create a biracial committee was like pulling teeth. Shift the scene to a few years later. I spent five years in grad school at the University of Chicago and three years in law school at NYU Law School where they were actively recruiting black students, so there was more than a token number, and the black students wouldn't talk to the white students. My mother, who taught junior high school in Los Angeles, had black friends. I didn't, despite the background I just gave you. Can you explain that? Why, why the black kids weren't talking to the white kids? You know, I think uh, there are three possible reasons that come to mind. Um, I'll give you a brief caveat, and then I'll give my three reasons. When I was in junior high school, my junior high school was 3.74% black. I counted all the black kids in the yearbook. And um, all the black kids sat throughout the class, the uh, cafeteria during lunch. We all sat together. There was no racial caucus or racial coalition. We were just friends. We had grown up together. We got into the same elementary school together. And I remember one day, it happened. A kid came to our school from Richmond, Virginia, which was the neighboring city. It was 82% black, the public school system. He came to our school, and he looked at the lunchroom with blacks sitting with their friends, who were white, and he said to us, the black kids, you, you guys can't do that. We all need to sit together at the black table. Well, me and my... 30 other black kids, uh, classmates kind of looked at each other and scratched our heads. Huh? What? We have to sit together because we're all black? Yes, yes, we must have a black table, more or less. So we all got together and sat at the black table in the lunchroom. And that was the creation of the black table, social isolation, if you will, at a junior high school level. But after a few days, I grew kind of bored because my friends, my running buddies, were the politicos and the nerds and the geeks and the people who really loved to study and read. And that wasn't going on too much at the black table. Uh, all peace out to my lovely former classmates at the black table, but it just wasn't satisfying my soul. So I left the black table. I, I departed and moved back to sit with my, my friends. But my point is, three reasons I think why maybe that's happening, that you observed that phenomenon. One, I think it's um, peer pressure. I think that sometimes in black American communities there's a peer pressure to stay with the group, to talk with other black people. Uh, case in point, I was at um, my wife's college reunion last weekend, and my wife is a strong black woman, and she would be happy to hear me say that. Um, but she also has many white friends. Um, so she had a, 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 a dilemma, had a real dilemma. Her college roommate, Hillary, was there, and they'd been roommates in college for four years. Love Hillary. She's on our wedding, maid of honor. 
Um, and my wife's best friend from San Diego was there, Lisa, who's a black woman. And so there was this constant pressure from Lisa and Hillary for my wife's attention. I remember it was kind of comical in some ways. Oh, you've got to come to the, um, the people of color gathering, or you've got to come to the Afro-American Cultural Center event. Whereas Hillary just wanted to hang out with her old college roommate from, from, from college. So my wife had to make choices. Ultimately, I think she chose to hang out more with Hillary, who's white, than Lisa, who's black, but her dear friend. But there was definitely, she definitely had to pick and choose. You know, do I go to the Yale Opera course, or do I go to the Yale People of Color convocation? Do I go to the lecture series about um, this, that, and the other, or do I go to the Yale Afro-American Cultural Center? So I think that that's part of it as well, sometimes a pressure to show solidarity, which leads you into uh, mixing with other black people. And then finally, I think desegregation created a sense of acting white. Stuart Butler's written a book called Acting White. That when schools were desegregated, certain values and attitudes became associated with whiteness, right? Uh, studiousness, um, <coughs> art study, uh, optimism. And so, once again, peer pressure became easier for some blacks to reject those mainstream values as oppressive or, or anti-black. So those are my three possible reasons. I, for some weird reason, never succumbed to those pressures. I, I retired from the black table at a young age, and I have enjoyed the larger world ever since. Okay. Um, I want to ask one question from um, our online viewers before we get back into the uh, IRL viewers. This is from Bill Severson. Have you thought about writing an illustrated children's book that embodies your ideas? Yes. Oh. Yes. Okay. Uh, I haven't told Wink that yet. Oh, okay. News to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually thinking about that the other night. I was thinking it would, it would be kind of fun if we... What would you call it? What title? I don't know. I have to think about that. Anti-anti-racist baby? <laughs> <laughs> the Adventures of Wink and Jen. I don't know. But, but I, I, yeah, I actually, I think that that would be... Some, that's, that's something that's playing around in my head. The, the obvious title is Jack and Jill, but oh, whatever. Oh. whatever. Ba, 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 boom. <laughs> Any ideas, Wayne? I have zero idea, Eric. <laughs> All right. That was good, though. <laughs> Thank you. Um, any questions? Yes. Thank you very much. A couple of questions, if I may. Is there such a thing as blackness? More broadly speaking, what is race? And in the, uh, as I would understand it, difficulty to define race, are we at times conflating race with culture? Those are great questions. I'm gonna try to answer two of them. What is, is there such a thing as blackness or what is it? And do we conflate blackness with culture? So, blackness. I think blackness is a, uh, a sense of self uh, rooted in um, family and the larger national story. So I think you can broadly define blackness. Um, now, it doesn't mean everyone is going to manifest, quote unquote, that part of the American story in the same way. As I always say, if there are over 40 million black Americans, there are over 40 million life stories. 
um, do we conflate culture with blackness? Um, that's a great question. And the thing is, blackness and culture do not, okay, my, my love, I have a lovely relative who would say race equals culture, blackness equals culture. I don't think that's true. I think that's false. You can be black and be a gangster. You can be black and be the daughter of the president of Howard University. You can be black and be Oprah Winfrey. Those are totally different cultures. Um, so culture doesn't define or limit blackness. It's easy to caricature, right? It's easy to create stereotypes. But I think a healthy understanding would recognize that culture can have millions of manifestations, right? Uh, so I think that um, it would be foolhardy to assume there's an algebraic equation, race equals culture, culture equals race, blackness equals culture, black, culture equals blackness. People who adopt that way of understanding blackness and race, I think they are myopic. I think they have a limited sense of human potential. Um, blackness can be many, many, the lady I met, who I asked where she's from, and she said Alaska, she's gonna have a different culture from me or from my kids who grew up in San Diego. That's why I think culture is such a, um, a loose, flexible thing that it doesn't really help us to better understand race or blackness, whatever that might be. I'm gonna go towards um, something that I've learned from Eric is he calls things discourse communities and we have they overlap these various discourse communities and I I really think that that is a better way to categorize than culture in some ways I don't I, I don't think that there is a black or white culture I think that's to say so is to homogenize race now, now some would argue well that certainly would have been true back in the 1950s but even then, there were different cultures inhabited by black people. You had the culture of the rural country folk and they struggled to build things. Okay. You had a different culture. Microphone. Oh, a different culture, thank you. A different culture of those who were part of the black bourgeoisie in Washington, D.C. So I think it, 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 there's always been differences, I think. Okay. I'll take another question from online. This is from Victoria. What a great and open conversation. Why can't these concepts be more broadly disseminated, particularly in our schools and universities? I don't know, Eric, tell, you tell me. I, I, it is, isn't it ironic uh, that something like, say, the 1619 Project, which has one way of understanding the world, gets automatic dissemination through thousands of schools, but kind of the reality of real life we're expressing is kind of ignored and dismissed and not embraced so readily. I don't know what the answer to that is, other than we need to have the generations turn over a cycle. Yeah, I w one of the things that Wink and I did in the process of writing the book, and, and if you're interested, you can find it online at truthinbetween.com. We wrote two curricula. Uh, one was on, the we called it the alternative 1619 project. So. What we did with that is to say, read the 1619 Project, read this as well. So we literally went through every single essay in the 1619 Project, read this, if you're gonna read this, read this as well, and really engage in critical thinking and, and great, engage in discussion. And I don't think what we're seeing now in a lot of educational environments is we're teaching kids what to think and not how to think. 
I don't, I, I, I see that time and time again. So I don't know why we're not having this. Maybe, I mean, we, maybe we can put our book in some university <laughs> school. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it, it's definitely happening. It would be nice if, if we got back to this idea of teaching kids how to think instead of what. Okay. Um, a question from the audience? First, I want to say that um, Jen and Wink, I love that you're having this conversation. Thank and you. I, I want to see so many more of these conversations. And, and I want to hear and, and learn more about the depth of, of that conversation that you've, you've had. Um, a question that I was reflecting on as, as I was listening to you was, Jen and Wink are extremely conversant extremely communicative, extremely educated, um, worldly, sophisticated people. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, from what I can see, right? Yeah. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> from what I can see. And, and I guess the question that I have is, how can, uh, have you given any thought to how we can foster this kind of human-to-human -human conversation um, among people who, may not have had your world experience, may not have had your level of education, may not have the words and the language that, that you have to reach out and recognize one another's humanness. Uh, what I think is sad is that we are going back in some ways to segregating. So these affinity groups, and we're separating each other at, you know, by are immutable characteristics. And so I would say that it starts young, and I think that it starts with putting the kids in these environments together, having them work on projects together. That kind of, I think, type of education would be a conversation starter. It would, from an early age, children would be able to converse in this way because they were, they've been doing it all around or since they were young. And instead what we see is a lot of times people segregating out based on affinity groups in the classroom, both you know, at elementary level all the way up through university level. So I don't think you have to necessarily have a, you know, high, a, a lot of education to be curious and to want to have a conversation. I just think that we are actually, we're taking curiosity out of the classroom. Yeah, I thought the question was going to be, what is your favorite color? <laughs> just, <laughs> just teasing. Inside joke. <laughs> but um, I, I, <laughs> I think um, it has to start young, and I think it has to center around common experiences like sports teams or the glee club or the key club or student council. I know that in my own experience, it was working together with other kids that really fostered the, um, the skill for conversation. If you always isolate yourself, then you're going to be stunned by people who are different from you. And that's not the way to a healthy society. You have to view life, regardless of your race, as your oyster. You have to, it's so funny, I sometimes wonder, was I uniquely blessed to have lived on Twyman Road, where everyone was black from 1961 to 1969, did that in a sense serve as a racial 
incubator so that I had a very strong sense of self so that when I started desegregated schools, you're not going to tell me I'm less than because all the important people in my life are black. Maybe, I wonder if sometimes if that's something to that. Maybe, but I think what's more important is as I went through junior high and high school, every day I was engaging other people as humans, as individuals. We were different in race, but so what of it? What we cared about was, can you help me win the football game or the basketball game? Are you going to do your part in the band club? Are you going to win that election for student council governor or student council president? I, I think common experiences are the way to go. And you don't have to be so worldly to do that. As long as people are relative equals, I think that that can be a, an important part of, uh, of the process, I think. Um, another question from the audience? You have somebody here? Uh, thank you very much, and I appreciate you taking the time. You know, Mr. Twyman, uh, you mentioned that uh, you're optimistic in the long term, if I'm crazy. That's true, beyond the year 2050. That's a long time from now, isn't it? It is. Uh, and I'm curious how, in your view, we get there. Uh, I imagine conversations like this is part of that answer. But, you know, we, as you know, you know, we live in an age of DEI where these attitudes are, we, we all agree that they're harmful, but they are enforced. And it's intimidation and coercion that mm -hmm. is fueling that. Uh, the consequences are real. Every week we see a new story. Uh, Chick-fil-A is not immune from that. The head of Uber's DEI last week, I'm sure you saw that story, was devoured in this. In the immediate term, what is it in your view as it relates to the path forward to get past this? Well, I, I mean, there are several possibilities. Uh, number one, um, if someone else subscribes to dogma, um, that doesn't mean you need to breathe full life into dogma as well. You can simply decline to voice or use certain words, right? Um, if you really feel the point, or, or you can press people for what you mean by diversity. What is it? Does that include viewpoint diversity? What do you mean by inclusion? Does that include Cato values and attitudes? Uh, what do you mean by equity? Do you mean redistribution of wealth, or do you mean something else? So I think maybe pressing for definitions is a way to corral excesses of dogma. I think declining to use certain words is a way to show your, um, your resistance. Um, I also think speaking up, maybe in family uh, or with friends, I can grow in that regard. I don't always speak my mind with my family, but maybe I will now. Um, writing essays, writing articles. I think there are many small ways in which individuals can show their dissent. Think of it this way. You say beyond 2050 is a long time. You bet, it certainly is. I won't be here or around. But think about this. I think you and I and everyone else here are in some way dissidents. I think we're all dissenters from the, from the dogma, from the orthodoxy. We are like Justice John Marshall Harlan in 1896, remember, when he wrote the lone dissent to Blessee versus Ferguson. So he knew there was a better way to view race and segregation, but he was outnumbered eight to one. But the beauty of it is, because he saw with his vision a better way, those words would influence a new generation 
of civil rights lawyers at Howard Law School in the 1920s, 30 years after 1896. And then those guys, led by Dean Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall and Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson and a whole bunch of other black civil rights lawyers, would help to usher in the coming of a better time with the Brown decision in 1954. So if it's any solace, try to think of, of yourself not as someone who's going to bring victory tomorrow, but rather as someone who has the vision to see the better way ahead, that you're like Justice Harlan, the lone dissenter to Plessy in 1896, and you're writing for the future, for the 1920s and the 1950s. That's how we have to think about it, people. We, we took two generations to get here, and it may take a generation or two to get out of here. That's my thought. I'm, I'm actually optimistic. I think you, there was a New York Times article not a couple of weeks back about people are getting tired of the DEI industry. And I can speak, you know, for Eric's a lot of, a lot of his work is on empowerment and we are creating, you know, kind of alternative, if you will, to DEI through ideas of empowered, empowered humanity theory. You've got people like Kareth Foster and Irshad Manji who are doing it, doing DEI differently. And it's, I, I will tell you the interest and the demand that I'm seeing for those types of programs that are different than, I mean, you still see the DEI stuff going on. Like you said, yes, the Chick-fil-A incident was, uh, was something that I read about the other day too. But there is enough of a demand that I'm optimistic that there is, I don't, wouldn't call it a sea change, but I think we're getting to a tipping point that I see earlier than 2050. So. <laughs> I think the long range, the long run uh, plan, so. I, I just think these things take time. I think, I think they're generational, right? So I think that there were people who fought against segregation in the 1900s, in the 1910s, in the 1920s, but it took time, and it took a groundswell of momentum over generations. That, that's just my vision. I could be wrong. And if I am wrong, I won't be here to tell <laughs> in 2050. Okay. One more question. It, it is from online. This is from Anonymous. Uh, do you think this discussion, or just having discussions with different people, addresses the historical oppression as systemic racism enforced by the government? Or is it that we just hope to gloss over the past and start new from today? The reality is that whiteness has been centered as the norm. I think that's a great question, and I'll tell you why. Because I can immediately see my points of objection to that. So I love questions like that. So number, number one, um, only in your mind is something a norm. I mean, you have to accept. You yourself have to think in those terms. Um, when I was young, blackness was the norm. When I got older, perhaps whiteness was the norm. But now that I'm in my 60s, I just view humanity as the norm. So I've kind of grown into a, a higher consciousness about things. Um, structural racism and, oh, my, my eyes glaze over. Look, I knew state-sponsored segregation. I went to a segregated school in first and second grade. We don't have state-sponsored racism today. We don't have state-sponsored segregation today. So it's a sad conflation of these terms which are misapplied in the here and now. Um, so because the question has premises that I disagree with, I just disagree respectfully. 
How about you? I, I, I think I'm going to, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, we have time for one more question. If anybody in the audience would like to ask that question. Make it a good one. No pressure. No pressure. That's right. That's right. No? Oh, come on, someone. <laughs> you want a microaggression? Yeah, a microaggression. <laughs> yes. Okay, okay. good. Th thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, first of all, this is a wonderful talk, and thank you for being here for it. My question is just related to institutions. I think a lot about institutions and how this moves through. It's sort of building on the same thing that we're all seeing. Um, and I've always looked at the military as an example of there's two institutions that I think know the country better than any, Walmart and the U.S. military. And when I've had discussions with people, particularly from the Marine Corps, they've, they've come up to me and they've said, in the Marines, we don't have black Marines, we don't have white Marines. We have dark green Marines and we have light green Marines. And that's sort of that the melting pot concept I thought is beautifully articulated. Yeah. My question is what institutions, what major American institutions are getting it right or close to right right now? Because I see many, that, many examples where it's not, not going in the right direction. Are there any examples that come to mind where you see it moving in the right direction? Thank you. The Cato Institute. <laughs> um, I, I could go on, but I, I think there are institutions outside of the mainstream that clearly see a better pathway forward, and I think it's just going to take, I think it's going to take time for those better visions to work their way into other mainstream institutions, but that's a good question, because um, like it or not, um, many of the people who cling to slogan words and, and jargon, uh, might be in purchase of power as we speak. Again, I, I'm optimistic because I do see the pushback. I see the pushback in the organization that you know, I co-founded, Institute of Liberal Values. I see the pushback in Free Black Thought that Eric co-founded. And so, at, in, in, in the Cato Institute. So I see that there is a need and a desire, I think, to connect. Is there an institution that's doing it and doing it well? Not necessarily, but the fact that people are asking questions and the fact that people are seeking out alternatives, I think is, is a positive development. And I do, you know, touching on what you said though as well, I mean, I'm sure that there's incidents of, of, of racism in the military as well, but I do, I mean, I, I like the way I, a lot of, I grew up in a military family, and so for me, I feel like that also shaped part of who I am because it was a different culture, if you will, to use the word culture. It was a different culture that I feel that allowed a flattening, if you will, of the, the racial divide. Right. That is an excellent way to end this event. Thank you very much for coming out. Uh, please give my guest, our guest, a round of applause.